0: Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And before we get into the Word, um, I was gone last week, but I have uh, a few special announcements for you. So you can call these bonus announcements. How's that? You want some bonus announcements? This is big news if I didn't let Jeremy tell you these things, right? (laughs) A few bonus announcements. First, I want to make sure that we recognize we have a special guest with us. We have the pastor of Harvest Joliet here. Pastor Eric, where's he at? Eric, where are you at? He brought his family to. Stand up. Let's give Pastor Eric a round of applause. <laughs> Love you guys. Love what you're doing down in Joliet, soon to be known as Joliet after the Spirit Falls. Hey, if you know people in Joliet, send them to Harvest. All right? Get them there. Pastor Eric's an awesome guy, a friend to me, a brother in Christ. Appreciate you being here, brother. Well, uh, next special announcement. Um, I have been keeping you up to date on what's going on with an organization called CSP. They are from California. They came to Chicago last year to help us spread the gospel in public high schools, okay? And our students, our high schoolers, have been leading the way to get outreach events happening in their own school, all right? And a couple of weeks ago at Oakland Community High School, a few of our students led another week-long outreach event, we're at lunch uh, in the theater at Oakland High School. they gave students a chance to come in and to hear special speakers share the gospel, like during school. And on Thursday alone, over 200 high school students came to this event in their school, to hear the gospel, then they went back to class. <laughs> Is that awesome or what? Uh, then so that was all two weeks ago, that was all week long. And then on Friday night, CSP had an event called "Ignite Your City." We're at Moraine Valley Church just down the street. Uh, over two, We've got pictures. Over 200 high schoolers from all over the city, and even some high schoolers from Grand Rapids drove in just to hear what God's doing in high schools and to catch a vision for what can be done in their school. There were like seven or eight youth pastors there, all listening, blown away by what God's doing. Listen, we didn't expect 200 high schoolers to come on a Friday night. They got far better things to be doing, right, than go to church on a Friday night. But they were there! And they were catching a vision for what God can do. I shared my story, my testimony, and challenged them to boldly go into their high schools with the truth. Listen, God is really sparking sparking, an awakening to the gospel in the high schools. And I need you to keep all this in prayer. But we're celebrating this morning that God is at work through our high schoolers. So praise God for that. Uh, last bonus announcement. Um, coming up on Sunday, December 14th, we have our next building fund offering. If you've been gone for a few weeks, look around. Doesn't the place look a whole lot better? Uh, I mean, we are like really in the final stretch, the final lap of getting this building all looking good. We're going to do carpet, some wood trim. We're going to have a baptism service. We don't even know if that works yet. We're going to have a baptism service next week. Um, so let me just say thank you to all of you who have given sacrificially of your time. People have donated weeks of full-time work here to get things done. Those of you who have donated Financially, we could not do it without you. I really mean that. If you didn't give what you gave, if you didn't serve the way you did, we would be back at Stag. We wouldn't be able to be here in the community. So thank you so much. On um, December 14th, it's your next opportunity to give to the building fund. Let me talk to three groups of people. First, maybe you made a pledge to the building fund earlier in the year, but for whatever reason you fell behind. Now that the vast majority of the work is done, we're starting to pay on, you know, what we owe the bank. So listen, we're counting on every dollar you pledged to see us through the project. So if you've fallen behind, why don't you set the goal of, by Sunday, December 14th, catching up on the pledge that you made and trusting the Lord to help you with that. Um, also, the second group of people, maybe part of your pledge included some special offering at some point. You know, maybe you didn't even know when you were going to give it. Let me just say this. Sunday the 14th would be a great day for you to give that special offering that you had planned to give. And listen, the sooner you give that special offering, the less we pay in interest over the course of the loan. So uh, let me just challenge you to consider giving uh, that special offering on Sunday, December 14th. Or, the third group of people, maybe you're newer to the church and you've been thinking about giving to the building fund, but you haven't done it yet. Hey, let me challenge you, maybe on the 14th you can give your first gift to the building fund. You can be a first-time giver. Uh, If you look around, so many people here have already sacrificed so that we can be this church in this community and maybe you found us because of that. And now this is your opportunity to become a partner in the work so that even more people can come and be loved and be discipled. Um, So consider giving your first gift to the building fund on December 14th. Come ready to give with a separate check or in a separate envelope also, you can give online at any point, but hey, let's close the year strong. God has given us such a great opportunity. Let's be awesome stewards of that opportunity together. All right, that does it for bonus announcements. Um, I was thinking I would preach from the Bible this morning, unless anyone has a problem with that. Anyone? No? You like that idea? I'm a little rusty because I was off for a week, but that's all right. Uh, in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. We've got a lot of guests, I'm sure, Thanksgiving weekend, so just to catch you up. We're in a series called The Front Lines of Faith. 1 Timothy is a book written from an apostle to a pastor. The apostle Paul is trying to fire Timothy up, trying to get him to pick up his weapon and march to the front lines and fight for the things inside the church that mean the world to God. Therefore, we're finding out what we're supposed to be fighting for in the church we're also also fighting out what we're not supposed to be fighting for because there was some bickering and quarreling going on in ephesus so we're learning a lot about god's church we've gotten to chapter three which is the most comprehensive detailed description of godliness found in the new testament what does it mean to be a godly man here we are first timothy chapter three but chapter three is not just written to godly male leaders What we find here is actually a description of what every Christian is becoming. Uh, Let me me use an illustration to show you how this chapter applies to everyone. How many of you have ever tried to assemble something without the instructions? Go ahead and put your hand up if you've ever tried to assemble. Maybe you're just that type of guy. Maybe you're like, I don't need the instructions. And your wife is like, yeah, you do. (laughs) Maybe, though, you just lost them. Well somebody was gracious enough to give us a bunk bed last week, and our girls have wanted bunk beds for a while. So I thought, oh, great idea. How hard can it be to put bunk beds together? Well, the bunk beds are like 15 years old, so who knows where the instructions are. And we picked up all the pieces and got them home and put them up in the girl's bedroom. And yesterday morning, my first job was to assemble the bunk beds, right? Without instructions. So, for the first hour, what I decided to do was just stare at the pieces and try and figure out how they go together. Literally an hour of just, um, does that, no that doesn't, go. do these men No, that, the, and, and the lady who gave it to us forgot how it looked when it was assembled. She's like, I don't know if it comes out or if they're parallel, I just don't know. So we didn't know what it was supposed to look like. We started putting it together wrong. Then Lauren in desperation went online and Googled bunk bed instructions, assembly, and she printed up like some generic random, maybe this will help you put your bunk bed together. Who knows? Good luck. (laughs) And so we're looking at this like we don't know how it's supposed to go together. Well, we finally figured out how they line up, but then we realized we were missing some pieces. So I had to go to uh, Menards. Do you want to know the worst aisle in, in the whole Menard store, it's the bolt aisle. This is the bolt aisle in Menards. Look at this. I needed four bolts. And two hours later, I walked out. I'm look, walking around with this picture like, I don't, what, there's all these little drawers and all these little bolts. I ran into somebody I knew there and she looked miserable. She's like, I've been here for five days. I can't find the bolts I need. The employees won't come down this aisle because they know they'll get sucked in for a whole day. You're on your own. Finally, I found bolts that worked, got home, and behold, I have assembled bunk bed. I won't tell you how long it took because you'll judge me, but I did it without the instructions. It was a pain. I didn't know what it looked like. All right. Now, why did I share that story with you? Here's why. God wants you to have a picture of what he's trying to build you into. He wants you to know what he's growing you to become. The picture God shows you, the, in, the assembly instructions that God shows you, are the leaders in the church. He says, look, look at your leaders. This is how I'm building you. Look at your elders. Look at your pastors. And guess what? That's who you're going to become. So when 1 Timothy 3 talks to leaders about becoming who God wants them to be, he's showing you who he wants you to become also. The leaders are the picture of who God is making you. So don't just tune out and say, oh, he's talking to leaders and pastors. No, this is you. All of this is for all of you. And in 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 3, what we're going to find this morning is there's four qualities God is trying to build into your life. And each quality has an opposite attached to it. These are drawn straight from verses 2 and 3. Let me read them to you. It says this. Therefore, uh, well, I'll just read from verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now look back down what you'll see there is we're going to co- we already covered some of this in weeks past. Today we're going to cover sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. We're going to skip hospitable and able to teach and then we're going to cover not a drunker, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. All right? So a little bit of a different treatment of the text. We normally go right in a row, but we're going to pick out these qualities cuz I think they complement each other really well. Here's the first one you can write down. You want to be a man of God? You want to be a woman of character? Write this down. Be sober-minded not a drunkard. Write that down in your bulletin. Be sober-minded, not a drunkard. Uh, In the Greek, it literally says, be sober. And it means, literally, be sober. Like, don't get drunk. Don't drink to the point where you are plastered. But there's also a figurative meaning. It doesn't just mean be sober physically. It also means be sober-minded spiritually. Meaning, don't drunk drive your life. You get that? Yes, watch your intake of alcohol so that you're not a drunk. But make choices that are consistent with being sober minded. Be sober minded, not a drunkard. What does that mean? It means you're thinking clearly, you're choosing clearly, you're not reckless or unstable or destructive. Being sober minded is a combination of maturity, self control, and faith. You put maturity, self control, and faith all together, and you get sober minded. Have you ever been behind a drunk driver? Have you ever been on the road with a drunk driver? Once I was on uh, 355 North, and there was a drunk truck driver in a semi. I'm like, that guy's wasted called the cops, and sure enough, the next day it comes out. Drunk truck driver hits three people. Thankfully, no one was killed, but I was like, whoa. I was, uh, like, 14 years ago, I was driving home behind a drunk driver, swerving all over the road, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get out and do something about this. Got out of my car at a stoplight, knocked on his window. Sir, you're obviously drunk. I don't have anywhere to be. Can I drive you home right now? I'd love to help. So what do you think he said to me? I'm not drunk. I'm just fine. I drive better this way. Sir, please, you're going to hurt somebody. Just give me the keys. Nobody, you know, I don't want to call the cops. No, no. Everything is okay. I'm like, I can smell it. Just let me help you. No. wouldn't let me help. I called the cops. Who knows what happened. Have you ever been behind a drunk? Have you ever tried to talk to a drunk before they do something harmful? Now, use all of that imagery because there are certain people who are living drunk. They're acting drunk. Drunks are known for certain things. Impaired vision, they're not seeing clearly. Bad judgment, they're not choosing wisely. No verbal filter. They often lose control of anger. Why? Because they've flooded their bodies with alcohol and so therefore they just aren't, they're not right and and they're in no condition to be in charge of anything. Now, it's true, literally, the man who is losing the, bo- the battle with the bottle, who's a drunk or a drinker, is not fit to lead in God's church. That's true. But that's not what the sermon's about this morning. In the figurative sense, the Bible is challenging us to not live a spiritually wobbly life. To be sober-minded. What does that mean? It means you're walking in a straight line. You're making predictable biblical choices. You're trustworthy and balanced. The person who's not sober-minded falls a lot into sin and foolishness. They can't stand up straight. They say things that are reckless and unrestrained. They're basically drunk driving their life. Maybe they're drunk driving their finances. They are swerving into danger financially. Maybe other people are trying to warn them, but they're just doing fine. They're drunk driving their marriage, the way they're treating their wife, the way they're treating their children. They're, they're swerving their whole family into harm's way, and you can't talk to them about it. Um, maybe they're drunk driving at work. They're just treating people in such a way that is so harmful and reckless. It, it's not like they're literally running into people, but they are basically plowing into people every day causing all of these wrecks because they're not sober-minded. God wants you to be sober-minded. One of our elders studied this passage and he, he sent me a note, which was really great, defining this word sober-minded. He wrote this, A man who is sober-minded does not lose his physical, mental, or spiritual, spiritual orientation easily. He remains stable and steadfast and his thinking is clear. He has a clear head He's maintaining an alert, steady, spiritual perspective in most situations. Sometimes we lose our sober-mindedness when a trial comes and we can't think straight. Or maybe a conflict rears up and we, and we, can't, we can't relate to people. Though, maybe there's a sickness or something and suddenly we're just not driving straight. And, and it's at that point that God wants to teach us how to be sober-minded. How to make sure we are staying right on his course if we've fallen down, he wants us to get right back up and to walk a nice straight path. That's what it means to be sober-minded, to be trustworthy and balanced, predictable. You know, when they pull you over, if they think that you're drunk, they'll give you what's it called? You know, it's called a field sobriety test. Now, these things aren't rocket science, right? Have you seen these before? Put one foot in front of the other. And the drunk can't do it, right? Falls right over. Lean your head back and touch your nose. Where's my nose? I don't know where my nose is. Sometimes they'll say to say your alphabet. Halfway through, you get lost. Or they'll say, count with your hands. Count to five, forward and backward. And They can't do it. They can't do the most basic things because they're drunk. Is there like a spiritual sobriety test that we can apply to see how you're doing? Yeah, I think there is. Hey, ask yourself this. Are you thinking clearly right now about your life? Maybe an unexpected crisis that's come in or a trial that you're going through or maybe there's a broken relationship right now. Are you thinking clearly? Or is your mind flooded with doubt and anger, and fear, and despair, and it's just flooding through your mind. Are you thinking clearly about others? Or or is your mind just so foggy because of the thoughts that are going... I I went to Moody Bible Institute to get my uh, master's degree, and one of my professors one day, he stood up and he said, I went through this dark trial several years ago, He said, you know, here I am teaching at Moody, you know, world-renowned university. I'm a Bible teacher. He said, and I got to be honest, I was going through such a dark time because of a financial crisis. He said, I was seriously considering ending my own life. He said, somehow I had just reasoned that because we could never get out of this hole, the life insurance policy would be the only way that I can provide for my family. He said, now, it doesn't make sense for me to tell you that now, but it was making sense to me then. And finally, somebody had to come into my life and say, you're not thinking clearly. This is a man of God. He went through this period where he wasn't sober-minded. Are you thinking clearly? Hey, ask yourself this. Are you saying things that are true and faithful and restrained? Or are you talking drunk? When you tell people what's going on in your life, is it like, I don't even know why God let this happen. I followed him and now he's, this is never going to get fixed. And, or with conflict. You know what? She's going to hear it the next time I'm... Are you talking drunk? Are the things that are shooting out of your mouth filled with anger and hatred and doubt and bitterness? Are you talking drunk? You're not sober-minded. Or are you talking like a man of God? You know what? God allowed this for a reason. He's better at me than at ruling the universe, and um, I'm going to trust Him. Are you talking like a faithful child? You know what? She hurt me, but I'm, I'm going to forgive, and uh, hopefully we can resolve it. It's, are you talking like a child of God, or are you talking drunk? What's coming out of your mouth? Are you thinking clearly? Are you saying things that are true and faithful and restrained? Are you steering your life into the pathway of God's commands, or are you veering far off? You know, I tried it that way. I tried it and I tried it and I tried it and where did it get me? Now I'm doing it. That's, that's what's going to happen now. Whatever else you say, if it results in you turning the wheel out of God's will, there's going to be a fiery crash. There will be. I can't take it anymore. I put up with this for so long and I'm just not going to do it. And then you got family in the back. Some people are veering into oncoming traffic because they're not thinking clearly. Hey, be sober-minded. Don't drunk-drive your family or your finances or your marriage. Maybe you're dizzy because of just the pace of life, or maybe you're weary just because of what you've been going through. Maybe you've fallen down, frankly. and, And hey, listen, it's time to get back up. Time to put one foot in front of the other and to let God chart your course, a nice, straight, predictable, obedient, sober-minded course no matter what you're going through. One foot in front of the other. God wants to teach you to be sober-minded. That's the first one. He wants to build this into your life. Maybe you've succeeded at this. Maybe you've failed at this. I'm a work in progress. Just when you think you've got one foot in front of the other, something knocks you down and you've got to get right back up. You'll never be done with this trait. God's going to grow you. Be sober-minded, not a drunkard. Here's the next one. Write this down. Be level-headed. Not out there. Where does this come from? It says in verse 2, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, we just covered that. Self-controlled is the second phrase. You see that? Self-controlled. Self-controlled in the ESV is actually interpretive. In the Greek, it actually means it's more located in the mind than in the actions. It means sound mind. Sound mind. Or healthy. A healthy mind. So that's why I think a, a better interpretation of this word would be level-headed. It's more located up here. If you're level-headed, one result is you are self-controlled. But I, I just want you to know that the origin of the word is far more up here. Level-headed. Healthy-minded. Healthy-minded. In Ephesus, there were some problems with what people were thinking. They weren't level-headed. The thing about being level-headed is this. You can fail this one using truth or error, which is why we have to be on guard. You see, in Ephesus, there were some people who were teaching false things. They were putting unhealthy things into the minds of people. They were misleading them. So these people were not healthy-minded because they were full of heresy. But there were other people who were taking true things like from the Old Testament and they were warping them or twisting them or being divisive about them. They were using truth to create an unhealthy mindset in the followers. Therefore, if you want to be level-headed, you have to be on guard because you can actually get this one wrong using truth or error, right? We want to be level-headed, not out there. Do you know what I mean when I say out there? Do you know some people who are out there? Do you have some relatives who are out there? Do you, you can nod if, if they're in the room, don't nod. But you can nod if you know what I'm talking about. Out there. Level-headed means you are in your right mind. If you're not level-headed, it's because you are out there somehow. This can take on many different forms. So let me, let me give you some application here. Being level-headed means, you can write this down. These are sub-points. Being level-headed means you're not wacky. You're not wacky. Meaning you're not like psychologically out there. Uh, One of our elders, Mike Kioski, was on the train a few weeks ago and he sat down next to a man and the man looked over at him and said, hey, guess what? And our elders said, what? This guy said, I'm going to marry Janet Jackson. And our elders like, oh, you are? Yep, we're going to have five kids. We're going to recreate the Jackson 5 together. It's like, and the elders like, really? Those are... Big goals. How how do you know you're going to marry Janet Jackson? Well, I saw a falling star and caught it in my hat. And when I looked in there, I saw her face and knew that it was a sign from God. Oh, you did, did you? (laughs) Out there. This guy then said to our elder, Mike, you want to become my like chief of security? We're going to buy Willis Tower and I'll give you a whole floor if you follow me. (laughs) And Our elder was like, no, thank you. All right, that guy is like out there. And we can't have leaders in the church who are, like, not all there, not playing with a full deck. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we've got to have people who are sane and not out there. It's just one of the requirements that is laid out in one of the facets of this word, being level-headed. Okay? Um, Write this down next. Be level-headed, not polarizing or militant. Not polarizing or militant. Um, there are some people who, either with truth or with error, get militant and obsessed with something. Do you know people, someone who has a one-track mind? They've got their thing, and they're always militantly, obsessively, nonstop on you about their one thing. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's the economy. It can be, maybe conspiracy theory, who knows? But they will never stop bringing this up. Do you know people like that? See, there's other people, though, who in the church, they latch on to something good. It could be a good theology. It could be also a good moral cause, right? But then they go somewhere with it that takes them out there. Do you know what I'm talking about? It, it, may, it might not be what they're saying that's the problem. It's just like they have a really unhealthy... Um, kind of strange militant obsessive attachment to that truth and and you find yourself saying well I don't want to confront them what they're saying is true but they're just kind of out there in their devotion to that Um, they're not level-headed they're not level-headed theologically people can get out there with many different topics of theology maybe end times they just never stop talking about about it. And their view is interesting, maybe biblical, but the point is they're just obsessive and militant about it and they never stop talking. Maybe it's spiritual gifts, all right? Maybe it's Calvinism, maybe it's some sort of other theology, but what they're saying, maybe it's true, okay? But it's just they're like obsessed with it, one-track mind with it, can't wait to bring it up, won't stop talking about it. You kind of know something's wrong, but you don't You don't really know how to approach it because what they're saying could be true. Here's the problem. They're not level-headed. They're not level-headed. You're right to feel like there's something wrong. You're confused because what they're saying contains truth. It's called they're not level-headed. They're kind of out there. Uh, This takes on many forms in the church. There are some people who latch on to a good cause. For example, um, would you agree that it's a Christian's responsibility to do whatever they can to, to, you know, to um, stop abortion and to help you know, young mothers to have the child. Would you agree that that's a good cause? Christians should do more about that, right? But some people latch on to that and it becomes their one-track mind and it's all they ever talk about. And they'll tell you, if you're not at the abortion clinic by Monday when you get off of work holding the graphic poster shouting at the top of your lungs, you're a failure as a Christian. Okay, now you're out there. You started with a good moral cause, but you went somewhere with it that is now not level-headed. You're not being level-headed, all right? Um, You can do this with many things. You can get off. You can get out there with many good things. Uh, There was a a man who wrote a book recently about how Christians grow. Uh, Well-known national author and good guy, Christian, who who I would respect, but just wrote a book, and a guy in our church gave me a copy of this book. And said, you've got to read this. It's awesome. All right, I'll read it. So I read it, and I just, it's not like what this guy was saying was wrong or heresy, but it was just out there. His theory of how Christians change is out there. So I told this guy from our church, hey, yeah, I read it. I I think the guy's just kind of out there. So this guy in our church got really mad and left our church. I can't believe it. I, I think we should really all be reading this. In fact, it should be a small group study, and I can't believe you would criticize this guy. And I was like, all right. Again, I'm not saying that he's totally wrong. I think he's just out there. And, uh, and sure enough, Everest, that guy left our church and here we are a year or two later and the author of this book is in all sorts of trouble now because he keeps fighting people about his view. He's been removed from the Gospel Coalition. He's very quarrelsome about his view. Why? Because he's not level-headed. He's not le- is he writing right things? I don't know. I agree and disagree. The point is he's not level-headed. He's not level-headed. He's running to extremes and he's being contentious. So, be level-headed. What does that mean? It means you're not wacky. It means you're not polarizing or militant. Um, Here's the next one, sub-point. It means you're not critical or suspicious. Being, so now this is, we just talked about your relationship toward truth or reality. Now we're talking about your relationship toward others. You can be out there, not level-headed in your relationship with others. How? By being way too critical or suspicious of other people. I found one of the most suspicious humans on the planet. Want to see a picture? One of the most suspicious humans on the planet. Check it out. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Tell me what you're trying to say. Do you know suspicious people? Do you know critical, negative, suspicious, oh, I know exactly what they're trying to do to me? Like people who are out there and what they think other people are really all about. They don't trust anyone. They've got all these theories. It's like a soap opera in their mind. Do you know people like that? They're they're not level-headed in their relationship toward other people. And God wants you to grow in being level-headed in your relationships. Hey, listen, men, are you extremely negative or critical Or suspicious of other men? At work or in your family, are you, you're not level headed? Hey, women, are you negative or critical or suspicious of other women? And when you tell people why, they're like, I don't think that's true. God wants to grow you, He wants to teach you how to be level headed, not out there with a critical suspicious negative mindset here's the last sub point be level-headed not ignorant or uninformed you can write that down not ignorant or uninformed um, it was clear in ephesus and in second timothy paul talks about how the false teachers were singling out uh, weak vulnerable women gullible women for whatever reason that's who they were going for uh, because they could easily mislead them maybe they were newer believers they had been not discipled properly the point is this There are certain people who are maybe newer Christians or not discipled, right? They don't really even have a basic grasp of what the Bible teaches, okay? So they're vulnerable, like, you know, like a wave tossed on the shore. They don't even quite know what the Bible teaches and these people have to be careful because by by default, they're not level-headed. They don't even know what the truth is, let alone how to process things biblically and they need help. Have you talked to new Christians? It's fun and funny. Because they believe strange things. New Christians, it's like a combination of Oprah and the newspaper and fortune cookies. And you're like, all right, listen, sit down. I got to teach you some Bible. <laughs> you're not thinking clearly. You're not level-headed because you don't know the truth yet. This is why leaders have to be level-headed because they're entrusted with people. The next generation, right now, children are being trained up in our ministry, right? Teenagers will meet. Uh, we've got to be level-headed so we can help them be mature and level-headed. If we don't know our truth, if we don't know what God's will is, how on earth are we going to teach other people how to be level-headed? So therefore, we can't be ignorant or uninformed because we won't be level-headed then. First quality is sober-minded, not a drunkard. Second quality is level-headed, not out there. Here's the third one. Be respectable, not quarrelsome. Be respectable, not quarrelsome. Look back down at verse 3. It says, not a drunkard, not violent. We'll get to that one, but gentle, not quarrelsome. See that? Verse 2, it says respectable. In verse 3, it says not quarrelsome. I think those are opposites here. Respectable, not quarrelsome. Respectable is a great word. It means well-ordered or well-displayed. Well-ordered or well-displayed. Both could apply here, but it seems to take on the nuance of being attractive, well-displayed, beautiful. In Titus 2.10, it says that in everything we should adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Meaning we make the gospel attractive by our choices. The church looks better because we're in it. This is a relational virtue. It takes other people to actually grow in this, meaning other people have to see what I'm doing, how I'm relating, and they have to conclude that the gospel is more attractive because I hold to it. That's what it means to be respectable. It means your life is earning the respect of other people for the sake of the gospel. Respectable. Not quarrelsome. Well, how does quarrelsome fit with this? Well, there's nothing uglier in the church than bickering and fighting and quarreling. Nothing makes the church look uglier to the world than if we can't get along, right? So we're supposed to be respectable in our choices and relationships, not quarrelsome. We're supposed to adorn the gospel. Hey, are you making the gospel look attractive to those around you by your choices? The church is described in the New Testament as a bride. You are the bride of Christ, but this bride is having a hard time getting herself ready for her own wedding. In fact, she's not ready. She has to be cleaned up because she's dirty. Her dress is wrinkled and filthy. This is a bad bride. You are a bad bride. You're not getting ready for your own wedding. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is portrayed as getting his own bride, you, ready for the wedding, because she didn't get ready on her own. She's a filthy bride. She's dirty, her dress is wrinkly, she hasn't bathed in weeks, there's flies in orbit around her greasy hair, and the groom has to get her ready. She's a dirty bride. In Revelation 19, 7-8, it says this, "...let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure." For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This seems to indicate that you have the opportunity granted to you by Christ to clothe yourself in good deeds, things that make the gospel look beautiful. Because of what you chose to do, the bride looks prettier than ever. Listen, the world will criticize us, right? Oh, the church is filled with good for nothings, hypocrites. They're just a sin. They're right she's an ugly bride, she's not ready for her wedding, they're right, but here you get a chance to do something to make her look more radiant to a watching world. Be respectable. Earn respect for the church by how you live. Do you know it's actually trendy right now in wedding photography for brides after they get married to trash their wedding dresses and take the pictures? Do you know that? It's in. It. I don't make the trends. I'm just telling you about it. All right, check this out. This is a bride who, right after her wedding, is going to get on an ATV and go through the mud, and, and here's how it ends for her. She's just this completely filthy. <laughs> I don't know where these come from. I'm just telling you that it's happening. Here's another one bride and groom who, after their wedding, just completely cover themselves in paint. It's in. If you're getting married, tell your photographer that you want to trash your dress. <laughs> it's in. The thing about the bride of Christ is we trash the dress before the wedding. We get all filthy and wrinkled and spotted up before we go before the groom. Shouldn't happen. Therefore, this whole life is Christ making his church radiant. And guess what? He enables you to adorn the doctrine of God to make it attractive. You have that option. How are you doing at that? Are you making the gospel look attractive to others by your choices? There's two ways that you can do this, being respectable and not quarrelsome. You can jot this down. Personally, avoid personal choices that make the gospel unattractive. Avoid personal choices that make the gospel unattractive. Do you know there are many gray areas in this life where the Bible doesn't clearly spell out if you should or if you shouldn't or how far you should go? or how how. There's gray areas. Meaning, you're supposed to use biblical discernment. Let me suggest to you that one way you can make choices personally in these gray areas is by asking yourself this question. Would this make the gospel more attractive if I did it, or more attractive if I didn't? You see, now you have to make a value judgment. Would, would the bride look better if I did this, or if I didn't? Gray areas, there's so many of them, you know, what movies should I, some churches are all hopped up on telling you what movies you should watch and what music you should listen to and what clothes you should, gray areas, and they try and make it all black and white. We're not doing that. But listen, as you make these decisions of what you read and what you listen to and what video games you play and what your family does and doesn't do, and you know what? Ask yourself this question. Teach your kids to ask this question. You know what? Would that make the gospel look attractive? If we did that or went there or we were with those people, would this make the gospel more attractive or less attractive? Um, several weeks ago when our uh, team from Harvest Brush Over Romania was here, they wanted to go shopping. And uh, so I was like, all right, fine, I'll take one of you shop. We went to Sears. I hate shopping. I get in this shopping zone. I'm like a zombie. I'm like, ah, shopping zone. Ah. I just like go to, I, well, but then I caught something out of my eye and it, it was a big red sale sign. And it said 90% off. 90 oh, 90% off at the jewelry counter. So then I was like, oh, out of my zone. And I walked up to the jewelry counter, and there was a little old lady there. She probably worked there as long as Sears was open. I was like, You have, does that say 90% off? She said, Yes, it does, sir. I said, why would you take 90% off of jewelry? She's like, well, because the Christmas stuff is coming in and we need to get rid of this. And I'm like, you couldn't find a box to put it in (laughs) for a month? You need to like totally give it away? So I was like, well, do you have anything good for 90% off? She's like, well, yeah, there's this. There's actually this one really nice diamond necklace over here that no one's bought yet. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, Lauren would love that. And it's only $40. It was hundreds of dollars and now it's only $40 because it's 90% 90% off. And then a line started forming behind me. And and all these people were looking at the same necklace. I was like, get back. I got here first. I'm in line here. So of course I bought the necklace for 90% off. I was like, can you leave the tag on there so she thinks I paid that much? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone else about this sale, okay? Sure enough, I gave it to Laura. She loved it, it looked great on her, you know, and and listen. You do that to the church every day. You get to pick out these beautiful necklaces and make the bride of Christ look gorgeous. With the words you choose, with the choices you make, where you go, who you're with, all these gray areas. And you know what you have to ask yourself? All right, how do I pick like the prettiest looking necklace in this situation and make sure that once I've done what I've chosen to do, that the bride looks as radiant as she can possibly look? In your personal choices, make the bride of Christ look attractive. Also, write this down. Relationally, avoid relating in a way that makes the gospel look unattractive. So not just you and your choices, but now in your relationships, you have to make sure that the bride looks dazzling in the way you're treating other Christians. Big problem going on here in Ephesus. There was bickering, there was fighting, arguing over theology. They couldn't get along. They were making the bride look hideous. The watching world was like, why would I want to go in there? They're all bickering and fighting and they can't get along. Ugly bride. With the way you relate to other people, you have an opportunity to make the bride look dazzling. So ask yourself this. Who are you having a hard time getting along with right now? Christians. Christians. Who are you having a hard time showing grace to? Who is it that's getting you upset? You see them and you're just... Soured towards them and you can't find a a nice tone and, hey, you have a choice. You can reach for this awesome necklace and in the way you treat this person, in the way you resolve this conflict, at the end of it all, the bride will be beautiful because of what you did or said or didn't say. Or you could just sling mud upon the church and throw buckets of it and say everything that's on your mind and tell her how you're feeling, mud, mud, mud mud, and the bride's hideous because of how Christians treat each other. We have to be respectable, not quarrelsome. We have to make the bride look attractive by the way we treat each other. Lauren and I went to a, uh, I told you about Ravi Zacharias' ministry. They had their Founders Week about a month ago. We went down there to their Founders Week and flew into the airport and went up to the car rental counter. I made a reservation in advance And so I went out there and I was like, where's my keys? And they're like, oh, sir, I'm sorry, you're going to have to have a seat and wait, your car's not ready yet. I was like, I made a reservation a month ago, you've got a whole month to get my car ready. What do you mean my car's not ready yet? And they're like, we're sorry, sir, we're busy and backed up, you're going to have to take a seat and wait, we'll call your name. Now, I thought I could cause a scene here and demand a refund and tell them, you know, Thankfully, I wasn't wearing a Christian shirt. I made that mistake before at airport. I wore a Christian shirt. And then you got to watch what you say when you're wearing a Christian shirt. You better cover it up before you say anything, right? So I could have caused the scene, but I was like, all right, fine. I'm just going to go and see. We'll go get some lunch. What's funny is when we sat down, we were eating our lunch. I got a phone call and they said, this is Southwest Airlines, sir. You forgot a bag at the airport. Can you come back to claim it? I was like, oh, we did, did we? Turns out we're still at the airport waiting for our car. I'll just walk over. And so that turned out in my favor. I got the bag we forgot, got the car, off we went, didn't cause a scene. Hey, you're going you're to find yourself in a hundred of those scenarios over the next month. How do I relate to people that I'm having a hard time relating to? In The drive-thru at the family party, and you know what? You're going to be tempted to reach for the mud bucket. You know, but you've got to reach for the necklace and try and relate to other people in a way that makes the church look dazzling. We've got to get after that. Be respectable, not quarrelsome. Learn how to resolve conflict in a mature biblical manner. Learn how to make personal choices that take into account how other people are going to view the church because of me. Be respectable not quarrelsome. So first, we have to be sober-minded. We can't be drunk driving our lives. Second, we have to be level-headed. We're not out there. Third, we have to be respectable, not quarrelsome, making the church dazzling and glorious. Here's the fourth one. Be gentle, not violent. Be gentle, not violent. So we've covered in verse 2, sober-minded, self-controlled, that's level-headed, respectable, that's adorning the gospel. We're skipping hospitable, able to teach. Now we're Going right here to not a drunkard. Oh, we covered that one. Not violent, but gentle. That's where we are. Not violent, but gentle. Gentle means not quick-tempered. Not physically overbearing. Um, you know, it's good for men in a church to have righteous anger. But, but what arouses our anger? What, is it a righteous thing that gets us angry? And then do we express it in a righteous, constructive way? God wants you to be gentle. But guys, I'm not, I'm not teaching you that God wants you to be a sissy. All right, have got far too many men who have no spiritual fire. They never get worked up or angry about anything spiritually in their home or at their church. And frankly, we need some guys to turn on the burner and to say, you know what, it shouldn't be the way it's happening in my house or in my work or at this school or in this church. God needs to be glorified. Yeah, get that fire going. I mean, let's get that fire going. Let's get some righteous anger in men who are fighting for things that are right in the church. So please, hear me correctly. When I'm saying God wants you to be gentle, I don't mean he wants you to be a sissy with no passion for anything. While well, you do whatever you want. I don't care. That's not what it means to be gentle in the biblical sense. It just means that you stop short of giving explosive, unbiblical, violent expression to your anger. It also means that you prevent unrighteous things from kindling your anger. The cause of your anger must be righteous. The expression of your anger must be righteous. Be gentle, not violent. Young men are, are being given such mixed messages about violence in our world today, aren't they? Uh, UFC is so popular, let's get two guys in a cage and let them pound each other into a bloody mess, and then we'll give them tons of money and we'll watch it again next month. Oh, so violence is exalted, and now you know, high schoolers and college guys are thinking, well, i got to get tough, i got to be able to pummel some guys if I'm going to be a real man. Right? But then they're given mixed messages, because in the NFL, if Ray Rice clocks his wife, then he gets asked to leave the team. Or if Adrian Peterson gets a little harsh with his son and starts injuring him, then he's asked to step down. Wait a minute, I thought violence was good, and now that kind of violence is bad. And, um, and then the NFL doesn't deal with it right away, and then Pepsi steps in, and they're like, we're pulling our sponsorship if you don't fix this. All right, fine, we'll fix it if it's going to cost us some money. Mixed messages. What's up with violence? What's up with anger? What's up with physical toughness? We're getting mixed messages, right? God steps in and says to the church, I don't want violent men leading. I don't want overbearing, explosive, physically violent men leading my church. God steps in and says, get your act together. You've been taught, if you want to be a real man, you've got to be a tough man. You've got to scream and shout. You've got to punch. You've got to throw things. No, you don't you got to pound on your steering wheel. you got to push other people around. you got to throw things through the air. No, you don't. No. That man is a weak man. That man can't control himself. That man is a weak man who can't even control himself. He's expressing his weakness, not his strength. It's, it's harder. It takes more strength to sit down and talk it through than to just shout everything that comes into your mind that's easy that's weak it's the tough man who can sit down and explain his thoughts and resolve conflict that takes far more strength to do and it's a stronger man that can do that it's the weak man who can't even rein his, his himself in it's the strong man who can control his own emotions and actions and words to be constructive That's the stronger man. The Bible says, better a patient man than a warrior, one who controls his temper than he who takes a city. The freaking out guy who goes and conquers a city is weaker and less than the guy who can control his own temper and be patient. The Bible exalts that man. You have to be gentle, not violent. You have to be able to resolve conflict and restrain yourself. Jesus was tough, would you agree? He could talk to a storm and tell it to calm down and it has to obey him. Demons, one demon could rip your arm off. He talked to men with hundreds of demons in them and they cowered in fear because of his strength. He chased people out of the temple with a whip, turned over the money, why? So that people could come in and worship. He was a strong man. And yet he was gentle. He knew how to talk to women who were hurting. He knew how to deal with children. He was gentle. And real men learn how to be gentle, not violent. Be sober-minded, not a drunkard. Level-headed, not out there. Respectable, not quarrelsome. And finally, gentle, not violent. Hey, at the end of this list, I, I don't know how you feel, but I actually feel like God has so much more work to do in my heart. Um, I don't want to preach this and and make you think that I've got all this together. Our elders don't want you to think that we've got A's in every one of these areas. God has had to work in each one of us to teach us patience, kindness, discernment in in gray areas. God has already done so much in my heart. I can tell you that if if you feel convicted in any of these four areas, I, I don't want to heap condemnation on you. I don't want you to feel like, and now we've concluded you're a good-for-nothing who will never change. You are loved. I mean, listen, I want to give you hope. The reason why the Bible is holding up these characteristics and showing you the assembly manual, right, is because God's building you to become these things. I I don't even think I've got 10% of the download complete. I think the vast majority of my personal spiritual growth is still in the future. And if you feel like you're a work in progress, if you feel like God's still teaching you these things, hey, welcome to the club. But I hope you can look into the lives of your small group leaders, your pastors here, your elders, and you can say, wow, that guy's really doing great at this, and I want to learn how to do that. I think, I hope you can be honest with God after this and say, you know what, (laughs) this this thing I'm doing here, I'm saying it, This is not making the bride look attractive. I've really got to get that fixed. I hope you can be honest with your small group leader this week and say, I felt really convicted about this one here, and I just want you to know, I want you to help me grow. See, we're not going to be a church of hypocrites that covers it up or pretends. We're going to be a church that's humble and honest and asks God to continue growing us. And I think it starts now. I think it starts with you. uh, As you have now looked into the mirror of God's Word, and you see your heart, and you see what he's trying to build you into, it's you going to him and saying, help me with this. Father, please, help me in this area, grow me in this area, and you know what? You'll find strength, you'll find hope, and you will change. That's the power of the gospel. Let's pray right now and invite God to do just that. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have given us the ultimate display of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Sure, there have been men throughout the Scripture who have displayed for us parts of godliness or seasons of godliness, but they have all fallen short and failed. But Lord Jesus, you you are the image of God. And in you, we see God's nature. And by your Spirit, we get to become more and more like you every day. So may we not sink into, hope, into hopeless despair when we hear what you want us to be. May we not let the enemy burden us with guilt over our failures, but instead, may we come into the presence of the Most High God for help in our time of need. Jesus, teach the men of this church to be sober-minded and level-headed respectable, and gentle. Challenge us in our words and our relationships to make the bride look glorious and attractive every day. Help us in our homes to be self-controlled. May we be men of faith. May we be men of character and love. Grow us. Forgive us. Get us right back up this week and help us to put one foot in front of the other. And I pray that our leaders would set a great example in all of these areas. Fill our small groups with life-changing conversations this week where men are being honest and open about areas of growth. Fill our hearts with confidence that at the cross we can find grace to change. Show us that you're not done with us. You will not leave us. You have not forsaken us. Here in this world, you will continue to iron out every wrinkle, to bleach out every stain, to remind us that we are destined for glory eternally with you forever. You will present us in your presence, unashamed and with great joy, but here now we have the chance to be holy as you are holy. Help us to make the most of this opportunity. Grow us for your glory and forgive us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.